Well, this morning we're continuing our series uh, right side up. We're looking at the Beatitudes of Jesus, a section of Scripture where Jesus preaches a sermon in Matthew chapter 5 where he calls certain people blessed. And it's often different, uh, we're finding, from the people that are, uh, we find blessed or called blessed in our world today. It's an upside-down world that Jesus is blessing. So this morning I want to invite you to open to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're to the next beatitude, which is in verse 7. I want to read this uh, this morning. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Begin with prayer this morning. Father, I ask this morning that in the midst of the roads we're all traveling, God, that we would, uh, we would find uh, mercy in the Lord of all mercy. That's what we believe you are. You are the Lord of mercy. You've shown us mercy time after time. God, the calling is in our own lives to be merciful people, to find ways to be merciful to others in, in that act, God. Somehow we find your mercy. So this morning, God, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching. So that Christ would be formed in our hearts. That's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, this week I've been thinking about mercy. And the first thing I connect when I think about mercy is uh, the idea of mercy and the idea of grace. In fact, I think, if I'm honest, that most of the time when I hear those terms, I, I think of them really meaning about the same thing. But as I thought more this week, I came back to a, a, something that someone had shared with me a while back. I don't remember who to attribute it to. But it, it's helped me this week as I thought about the distinction between uh, grace and mercy. This is the way I'd like to define it this morning. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. And mercy is not getting what we do deserve. There's actually a pretty big distinction between those things. For example, God loves each and every one of us. He offers His love as a gift to us that we uh, don't deserve. It's a great gift that God gives us. That's, that's grace. That's, that's something we don't deserve that God offers to us. But the truth is, in our own lives, there's a lot of things we do deserve that we don't get. And we're grateful for those things when it comes to God's mercy. Uh, in fact, one of the things I thought about this week is from, from one of the things that Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says that the wages of sin, the payment of sin is death. But God offers His mercy so that death is not the result for those of us who are found in Him. Grace is getting an unexpected gift. Mercy is seeing those flashing lights in your rearview mirror, looking down at your speedometer and realizing you're going 20 miles over, and getting off with a warning instead of a ticket, right? Anyone can say amen to that? We've all experienced mercy at one time in our lives or another. But that doesn't mean that mercy is an easy thing to, to give, is it? Just because we've received mercy doesn't mean it's easy and the first thing that we want to offer to others. Mercy comes at a cost to the person who offers it. You have to sacrifice something in order to, to offer mercy to someone else. And as the people of God, the center of our story is a story of mercy. As I was looking through Scripture this week, I was seeking to understand mercy in a more complete way, and I, I was amazed by how central this virtue, mercy, is throughout all of Scripture. Early on in my uh, journey as a follower of Jesus, if someone had asked me, what's the most important tenet of your faith? What's the most important uh, virtue when it comes to, to faith? What's the most important command in Scripture? I would have had a hard time answering that question. I would have said, most important? I think they're all important. How can I narrow it down to, to just one? 
I don't think I would have known the answer. I assumed everything was important. But, but Jesus and the early Christians had some things that they prioritized. They said were more important than other things. And so as we look at this, I, I'm guessing the reality is most of us believe some things are more core than other things. In fact, one way I, I know this is uh, you can tell a lot of, about a person by uh, looking at their Bibles. Um, now I don't know how this works out with, you know, you version on your phones exactly, but but when it comes to Bibles, you can tell a lot about a person by their Bible, by what they mark and by uh, how pristine their Bible is. Maybe uh, some people who duct tape it together, that tells us something about the use of their Bibles, right? But if you were to take your Bible and you were to just let it fall open, I'm curious where it might fall open to. I think where it falls open tells you something because you've spent some time in those places in Scripture. I would guess there's not too many of us that we let it fall open and then the markings are most in Leviticus. I'm guessing that's probably lesser on the scale, right? Now, there's different places for different ones of us. For some, it would be Genesis because we're those that every first of the year, we're like, we're going to read the Bible this year. And we get through to Leviticus and Numbers and, well, there's a lot more worn in Genesis because it's hard to get through all that, right? But for others of us, it might be the Psalms. We've been through difficult moments in our lives and we found that the words of the Psalms have been meaningful for us. They've been the the prayers that we've been able to utter when we don't know what to pray. And so the Psalms become places that we pour over a lot. For others of us, it may be the Gospels, that the story of Jesus is so central that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are probably the most worn sections. For others, it may be Paul's letter. And if so, we're glad you came from Churches of Christ, right? I mean, we, we have honored and valued the epistles, knowing what Paul said to those early churches. And we've centered a lot of our teaching in those places. But just because we read a, a section of Scripture more than others doesn't mean that's more important just because we read it more often. So how do we come to see the most important parts of Scripture? Well, it's often good to look to Jesus, and Jesus actually gets asked a question about what's most important in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 22, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to, to open with me this morning. Matthew 22, I want to start reading this scene from, from verse 34 and following. says there, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, I've, I've mentioned this passage before, and it's one of those central passages for me because of the question, right? It's a question a lot of us would want to know. What's, what's most important? Boil it down, Jesus, to just the one thing. And again, growing up, I would have thought Jesus' response would have been, are you kidding me? There's 613 Old Testament laws. They're all important. How could you narrow that down to any one? But that's not the response that Jesus gives. He quickly narrows it down. This is what he says in verse 37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus says it's simple. It's, it's to love God with everything you have, and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, these two commands, they sum up all of the law and the prophets. In other words, these themes, they're actually more central to the Old Testament and really all of Scripture than, than others that are there, loving God and loving your neighbor. And right after he mentions the importance about loving neighbors, he begins to launch into a really hard conversation with the Pharisees. It's in chapter 23, if you move a a chapter forward, some interesting things that are said there. In fact, if you like, you know, if you have a problem with religious authorities, like this is probably your chapter, right? Because Jesus takes it out on them, on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 
He uses some colorful language. And why is Jesus upset in this passage? Well, let's first read from Matthew 23, verses 23 to 24. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. See, just before this, Jesus was asked the most important thing, and he says, it's to love God with everything you have, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. And here are Pharisees that seem to be binding people with more laws and not showing much love in the process. Another reason he's upset is these Pharisees seem to be much more concerned about external appearance than they do about a pure life that's shown from within. And so they're involved in all kinds of religious ritual. That's not necessarily a heart that's pursuing these in the right way. So Jesus goes on and on. He uses colorful language. What's most important here? It's justice, it's mercy, and it's faithfulness. These are more important matters. In fact, the King James translates this as these are weightier matters. Weightier matters. They weigh more than the others in some way. So mercy isn't just one theme among many. He's saying this is a weightier matter. This matters more than some of the ritual that we've done in the past. But this isn't just a New Testament concept. This goes all the way back to the very beginning when when God reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai for the second time that the law comes. Remember, he breaks the commandments and has to go back up. Must have been a little bit of an embarrassing scene for Moses. But God passes in front of Moses. This is Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 and 6 that I want to read from. I want to read this from the message translation. Listen again to this theme of what's most important, how God identifies himself. So Moses cut two tablets of stone just like the originals. He got up early in the morning and climbed Mount Sinai as God had commanded him, carrying the two tablets of stone. God descended in the cloud and took up his position there beside him and called out the name God. God passed in front of him and called out, God, God, the God of mercy and grace, endlessly patient. So when God identifies himself to Moses, this is how he defines himself. He says, I'm a God of of steadfast love. I'm a God of of mercy. This is who I am. But this isn't just an expectation for us about who God is. God expects for his people to live this kind of life, to to, to show the world what it means like to serve a merciful God means we're to be merciful people to others as well. And it's not just a suggestion from God. It's actually a requirement. It talks about a little bit later. This is in the book of Micah where where God talks to the people, uh, to his people, and he says, "This this is what I require of you. Listen to these These words, uh, Micah 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Again, God doesn't want outside ritual if it's not combined with a heart that's driven toward him. That's what he told the Pharisees, and it's true back then. He requires us to act these ways, and mercy is a key part of that action. Another of those passages that shows up is in the book of of Hosea. I had a little trouble finding it in first service. Maybe you'll give me some grace this morning. Hosea chapter 6, 
verse 6. It's not one of those worn passages as much. God says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Again, he says it the same refrain. Sacrifice is great. Continue to do what you're doing, but it can't just be that. It can't be external only. God is driving us to be a people of mercy. He requires this of us. And so these things matter more. They weigh more than some of the other things. Our God's a God of mercy who requires those of us who are His followers to show mercy as well. The Bible majors in mercy. But that isn't exactly the reputation that I hear about Christians all that much, is it you? Merciful people? That's, that's not what I read when I, when I read the critiques of Christianity right now that are coming out. No, it's not so much Jesus that they're pushed aside by. It's His followers that don't seem to show the same things of importance to Him. And our culture hasn't majored in mercy very well either, has it? I mean, just listen to the presidential election. Mercy doesn't seem to be the top theme of this election season, right? We tend to want to give people what they deserve. Enemies, what they deserve, give it to them. Immigrants, give them what they deserve. The poor, give them what they deserve. But mercy, not exactly a talking point. But I think it's important for us to go back and look how God commanded the people of Israel to begin their journey as people in a promised land, as they were no longer slaves in Egypt, but they're being freed. And, and Moses said some things to them that are very important for them to understand when they set up their own land, their own people uh, to govern themselves. This is in the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bibles, open there with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Right before they enter into the land, these words are said to them. And I think it's important for us to hear as well. Deuteronomy 24 verse 17. It says there, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or, or, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. This is why I commanded you to do this. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And this is important, verse 22. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. This is a passage about mercy, isn't it? It's a, a passage about active compassion, which is another definition I would give for mercy today. And there's no word to give the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow about what they deserve. Instead, the command is don't be stingy. Be generous with your land and with your things. The command is to show mercy. So how do we become people of mercy to those who need it most? And I think the hint is there if we read along again in Deuteronomy 24. Do you notice the refrain that was there over and over again? And then finally in verse 22, what it said? It says, you treat the immigrant, you treat the orphan, you treat the widow this way because, remember, you were once slaves in Egypt. If we want to become merciful people in our own lives, if you want to become a merciful person, it begins with learning to remember properly. 
to remember well. And sometimes we forget. This is the refrain of the people of God. They forget what God had done, and so they don't respond in the ways God wants them to respond. But what, what he says in verse 22 is, remember who you were. You were once slaves in Egypt. And this impacts the way you treat people when you enter in and, and lead a land as well. See, Israel was in slavery for 400 years. They had been stomped on. They'd been the people who worked every day without rest. The starting point for those who become merciful people are to remember the mercy that they have received first. So I'm wondering in your own life, what does it look like to recall, to remember well the mercy that you have been given? Because when you realize the mercy you have received, the only proper response to return to others is mercy in response to them. And mercy is not something we can can white-knuckle. It's not something we can muster on our own account. The only way to become a merciful person is to fully acknowledge the mercy that we have received from God. Jesus tells a story about this in the book of Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 18, if you want to turn there with me. It's one of the parables that he tells. In Matthew 18, Peter's asked a question that a lot of us would like to ask Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I'm into this whole forgiveness thing. I'm into giving mercy, but what's the extent of that, right? How many times am I supposed to forgive the people who've done wrong against me? Seven times, Jesus? Peter goes even more, maybe 77 times, Jesus? Or 77 times seven? And this is what Jesus says in response. He responds with a story. This is Matthew 18, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had uh, had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. You notice what's happening in the scene, right? It's a story about mercy that he's telling about, this forgiveness question that Peter has. And he tells about a servant and a master, 10,000 bags of gold in debt. And yet the servant cries out to God, would you forgive, please? I'm begging you that you would forgive. And sure enough, the master cancels this debt. So what does the man do? What does the servant do? We read on and and find out. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servants fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. But here's this servant who's received so much mercy, right? And what does he respond with? He doesn't respond with mercy. He responds by exacting what he was owed from someone else. Far less of an amount. He chokes the man, and he will not show mercy to the man. How does God feel about that? Well, we find out as we read on in verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is serious stuff, this mercy stuff. To acknowledge what we've received and then be able to pass on with a generous spirit the mercy of God to others. So how do we become this? How, 
Let's look a little bit more at this servant. How did, who was this servant? What must he have been like? I don't know all the answers to that question, but I think I know this man. I, I think I've met him before. In fact, <laughs> I think I'm a bit like this man. Just a confession, I guess, from the stage. I, I'm a perfectionist. Um, some of you may struggle with that quality as well. Are any of you perfectionists out there? Any of you married to perfectionists out there? Don't raise your hand on that one. No, 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 no. Any of you grow up with parents who were perfectionists? There's something I've discovered about perfectionism in my own life. Perfectionists have a hard time living with other people. They have high demands and high expectations. But I'll tell you the truth, for those who aren't that way, perfectionists are even harder on themselves. I'm hard on others. I'm harder on myself. And if you come across a person who, who offers you no mercy, I just want you to imagine for a moment the lack of mercy they experience in their own lives. Because if you cannot receive mercy personally, there's nothing you have to offer others of mercy from your own experience. You have no store in order to offer that to others. And I don't know the man in Jesus, but I know people like him. This servant, I'm guessing he's not a bad guy. I know him well enough to know he, he doesn't realize the mercy he's received. You know what I think about this, about this servant? I think he still thinks, even though he's been forgiven, that he owes the master until he can pay it back. I'm not sure he even heard what the master said. In fact, that was his thing was, if you'll let me go, I'll, I'll go and make sure that I can pay you back. And he says, it's forgiven. But for those of you who are perfectionists, it's hard to hear those words, isn't it? All you hear is, okay, now I'm in debt and I've got to do anything I can. So what's the first thing he does when he leaves off of his knees begging this man for mercy? He goes trying to find money so that he can begin the process of paying back what has already been forgiven. And if that's not a parable for our time and for some of us who are sitting here today, I don't know what is. Some of us are really hard on the people around us, hard on the people we love most. Part of the reason that happens is because we've not learned to fully embrace, fully receive the mercy that God offers to us. Because the only way to become a merciful person is to fully understand the mercy that you have received. Or to put it another way, remember, you all were once slaves in Egypt, but do you remember what God did to redeem you? Or maybe, better yet for us, remember that God sent His Son Jesus into the world and, and He's offered you mercy upon mercy to forgive your souls. How can you not offer the same mercy to others? Church, I want you to hear something loud and clear this morning. You are forgiven. There's nothing you have to go back and, and now somehow point out that others aren't enough or, or accumulate enough or do enough so that God will give you the mercy. You don't have to leave your knees begging for mercy and going out to somehow find a way to repay God. You are forgiven. You have received mercy. And when you fully embrace that, when you fully come to understand that, it will change every interaction you have in your life. And I need to understand that better. I don't know about you. I need to embrace that more than I do right now. I'm still working for something I cannot work for. And we need to confess that, church. I'm wondering how that feels to God when he's paid the ultimate sacrifice to Jesus' his son. And the response of us is, I wonder what I can do to make sure God loves me more. As a 
parent, that hurts me. It would hurt me to know that my kids have been in that place. But when we come to believe the mercy of God deep in our bones, it changes everything. In 2001, Tim Gaglin went to work for President George Bush in the White House. It was the White House Office of Public uh, Liaison. That in, and he started in 2001, but in February of 2008, it was discovered that 27 of his 39 published articles were plagiarized. And the shame and all of that came on him. He admitted he was guilty. He was humiliated, and it was a crisis moment for him. And so he was called into the Oval Office later, and uh, President Bush had invited him in. And Gaglin's first words were words that he had rehearsed over and over again, knowing exactly what he would say if he got before the president. He said, Mr. President, I owe you. And, and before he could get out the rest of the words, Bush simply said, Tim, you're forgiven. And it surprised Gaglin at first. And, and he responded and he, he, he said those rehearsed words again. But Mr. President, I, and before he could get out any more, more words, Bush interrupted him with a firm, stop. I have known mercy in my life. I've needed it myself, and you are forgiven. And after a long talk with Bush, Gaglin went on to write and say later on, that was the spiritual turning point in his life. And I have to wonder how many interactions in our lives that we respond harshly when if we would just open up and offer mercy, who knows what transformations might happen in the, in the lives of others. Too often in my life, my response is to be hard with people. It's to, to demand payback. It's not to respond first with mercy. And that's not a problem of my character. It's a, it's a problem of understanding my identity and my forgiveness. Church, this morning, there are two cycles we can live into. One of those cycles is to, to cycle in revenge, to cycle in response in ways that people harm us and we, we cause problems back for them. And that creates a certain cycle in the world. But there's another cycle of mercy that goes something like what Jesus said in Matthew 5.7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And I don't think we just offer mercy out of, uh, out of, out of our own uh, ability to do it. Mercy happens first by receiving it. But once we receive it, all of a sudden we're able to offer it in all new ways that we never imagined before. And you know what happens when you offer back the mercy and you empty yourselves of that? The promise, the blessing of Jesus is, blessed are the merciful, because guess what? You're going to receive more mercy. This is a cycle that I would challenge us to live out in our lives. But it begins today not by saying, well, tomorrow I'm going to be more merciful. No, no, no. It starts today by accepting the mercy of God. So some of you this morning, you, you may not have ever accepted that. You may have never made that decision to say, God, I'm, I'm giving up on the project of becoming good enough on my own. I'm going to lay myself down on the altar of what Jesus has given to me. I'm going to receive the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, we would love to have that conversation with you. We would love to, to talk about how uh, you come into contact with that kind of God. We have people in the back that would love to pray with you or talk with you after service. I'll be up front as well. My guess is, though, that many of you have made a decision that you would think would lead you to that, but you're still living with a lack of mercy shown to others. So maybe for the first time today, you need to not just take Jesus on in baptism. You've done that. You need to accept the grace and mercy that's offered to you. This morning, I want to pray that we would all receive that mercy so that we can then offer that mercy so that we might then again receive that mercy. This is the word of Jesus. Congratulations to those who have received mercy, 
who offer mercy, for they will receive mercy again. Let's pray as we close our time today. God, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for the mercy that he showed in his life. I thank you for the ways that you call us to mercy. And God, it's not anything we can muster on our own. And so we, we beg you, God, again for more mercy. And God, I, I pray today that for the first time some of us would accept that. We would give up the, the, the way of life that we thought was the way, which was to exact revenge that would be the way to, to earn more points or make sure that others aren't seen as as good so that we can receive your grace and mercy. That's not how it works, God. You offer your mercy in so many great ways through Jesus. So God, we receive that today. We want to live out of the mercy that you've given so that we might offer that to everyone we encounter this week. So when they ask with questioning eyes, what is that about? How could you forgive this? We have a reason for our answer. It's Jesus. God, would you go with us in your mercy and would you lead us in mercy this week? In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.